Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. You'll remember that last week we played part one of my conversation with Twisted Sister guitarist John J.J. French. This week is the second and final part of that conversation. We're going to pick it up right where we left off last week. Here we go. So who releases Who's Next? The Rolling Stones released Sticky Fingers. Rod Stewart, every picture tells a story. I mean, come on. Phenomenal music. Yeah. So Curtis Mayfield, Move On Up and Superfly. Well, now, Move On Up was another one of those songs in the summer of 71 in, in England and in Europe. Move On Up was a major hit. Massive. You know, they love R&B. They love blues. They love soul. They love Motown. Oh, yeah. They love Curtis Mayfield. They love the impressions. And so I distinctly remember walking to the spaghetti factory, you know, hearing, you know, da 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 Excuse me. I, you know, I'm not Yoko Ono or Neil Young. I to destroy your ability to have lunch. This is why I'm not a lead singer. It's why I hired Dean. Okay. But Move On Up is just one of those songs where you hear it and it's summer and it's blasting. Those records evoke that summer. And here we are in the summer of, you know, God, 2019. I mean, it's kind of, I have to tell you, I think if someone asked me in 1971 if I'd be alive in 2019, <laughs> I, I, would, I wouldn't exactly know what to say because, you know, the chances were no, not at the rate that I was consuming drugs at the time. And, and, and I speak about this, especially in my upcoming book, uh, so people understand it because, um, you know, the band Twisted Sister was straight and I was totally straight because I walked away from everything mm-hmm. a year later. So, but that summer was not the year later. So that summer, JJ uh, French was steeped in psychedelia and weed and, uh, and hash all over Europe and just partying out everywhere. And these records were the music of that era. Wow. Now, back then, you did a lot of drugs, but you didn't drink, did you? No, I never, ever drank. I mean, I have wine today, but I was, alcohol was never a part of my life. I have no history of it, and I don't like it, um, except for a glass of wine here and there or a mixed drink at a party. I'll have an occasional. But no, I've never, never been a fan of alcohol, ever. Really? So I have no history of it. In fact, it's not only have I never, I've never purchased alcohol in a store in my life. And, <laughs> uh, and, and my, my wife's 50th birthday party, the caterer gave me a list of alcohol to buy for the party. My wife worked at, at uh, Forbes at the time. So I go to a, a liquor store in my neighborhood, and I give him this list, and I said, um, so how much is this stuff, like $300? And the guy looked at me like, you ever bought alcohol before? I said, now mind you, like I'm you know, 60 at the time. you know, So like I'm going, uh, not, no. And he goes, this is like $1,500 worth of booze. You really never bought alcohol? I said, I wouldn't know the difference. I don't know anything. He says, he said, what are you buying this for? I said, well, it's my girlfriend's 50th and, you know, she works at Forbes. And he goes, oh, you'll be back. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, those people are just freaking alcoholics. So you don't even know what you've done. And, of course, we had to come back because they drank like fish. But, no, I never drank. And as is fondly told in the history of Chronic and Twisted Sister, I fired guys for being alcoholics yes. and drug addicts. I mean, we had horrible experiences with guys who drank. Not to say that everyone who drinks and does drugs is a terrible partner, but they certainly were in Twisted Sister. 
They weren't good for the band. You know, they put the band in jeopardy. The, uh, the abuse of drugs and alcohol had a serious effect on consistency. You know, the band was working a lot, as you know. Oh, I mean, yeah. It was, you know, 200 to, to 300 nights a year. It was a demanding schedule. And when we weren't working, we were rehearsing. And the only way you can do that is to be ready and prepared. So if you're getting over a hangover uh, or you're feeling sick, it's not helping me. I mean, I won't name names of of ex-members, but I had an ex-member collapse in front of a radio DJ of a major radio station who came to host a show one night. Because, you know, that happens. Our local radio stations will come down and they're having a special night for their station and they'll be at a local bar and, you know, yeah. they'll be... We had, you know, back in those days, the bars were big and the, the club scene was vibrant and it was a big moneymaker for these radio stations because they all advertised all the time. You know, because drinking age of 18. And I had one ex-drummer um, collapse in an epileptic seizure because he was doing a San Francisco speedball. Oh. Or so I was told by one of the front row girls who told me it was heroin and methadrine okay. or something. And he was frothing at the mouth. And. You know, I'm sitting there talking to the guy, yeah, we really, we work hard, we're straight, and this guy collapses and starts frothing at the mouth. And, you know, and that was the end of that guy. And the crazy thing about that guy is he goes into rehab years later. Yeah. And then he becomes a born again Christian, then he pickets us for being the devil, which I got, which I have, which I talk about in our documentary with another band member. We're a straight band of business guys trying to make a living. And these people with like drug and alcohol problems finally find the light, leave, and then tell us we're the devil. I'm sorry. I didn't have the drinking problem, pal. I didn't have the drug problem, pal. You did. I'm glad you're straight. Uh, but I have no tolerance for people with this problem. I mean, I give you a chance, you know, several times. I'll say, you know, please go try to get help. And they didn't. And they jeopardized the band. So yep. no, I'm sorry. I just, I don't know anything about alcohol. I've had five beers in my entire, no, six beers. I can tell you when I had six beers in my life. And, um, I've never enjoyed the experience. Now, have you had a Canadian beer, John? Um, how much can carbonated piss water differ from country to <laughs> Frankly, I had my first beer at, at 16. We got some guy, or 15 or 14, some guy, we talked him into buying a six-pack of Rheingold or some crap. And me and my friend drank it, and I threw up, right? So that was beer. <laughs> that was attempt one. Okay. Then the band starts in 70. Three, and I think in the summer of 73, we were working at a bar, and you know, my singer, was, who was an alcoholic, I didn't know at that point, says, come on, fuck, oh, you should learn how to drink. So he, he they, tells the bartender to give me a Heineken. I drank it and got sick, so that was, a, that was beer two. <laughs> and he said to me, you know, there's all this great stuff. It's whiskey, rye, blah, 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 scotch, and so... And he says to the bartender, give JJ a taste. And the guy takes a little shot glasses and he puts whiskey, rice, scotch, and whatever the crap is, you know, down the line. And I took it and I had little sips of each because I said, okay, maybe I don't get it. Maybe I'll just have to be exposed to it, mm -hmm. you know, and we're working at a bar and we're working at a bar all summer and why not? And everything tasted like mouthwash. It was awful. And I just was like, oh, I spit it out and go, who the hell drinks this crap, you know? So, so no, just not my thing. And then wine later on, I began, I became, a wine aficionado, you know, like I'm a high-end audio aficionado and a watch guy and now and a wine. Guy. And I appreciate a nice glass of wine. But my third beer was, let me think here. So it was a Heineken. There was that. My third beer, I think, was also in the bar maybe seven or eight years later. Like someone brought a bottle of beer on stage. I was dying of thirst. I drank some of it and I hated it. And then my f fourth beer was 
Uh, the road crew demanded that we go to a beer hall when we were on tour in 86 in Europe. And you know your road crews are a bunch of alcoholics because that's the kind of quality human beings that you get when you have road crews, which are fine. And they're great guys. They did their job. But I want to treat them well. So I took them to some beer hall in Munich. And, um, you know, they're drinking beer and eating Wienerschnitzel. And there's an umpa band in the middle. And my guys are getting wrecked. And it was an off day, like a couple off days. They're fine. They're, Come on, man. You should have a stein of beer. Come on, man. Wienerschnitzel, join us. So I'm there, you know, okay, it's with the crew, stein of beer. Wienerschnitzel threw up all over the place. So that was a failure. <laughs> Ten years later, 96, 97, I'm on tour with Seven Dust in, in England. Yeah. And, you know, these guys, you know, drink and, you know, a lot and they're Southern guys and they like their, they like their beers and shit. And so we're at a, some bar after they played a great show and they're a great band, you know, come on, JJ, you know, the guys are from Atlanta. Come on, JJ, have a beer with us, man. No, you guys know I don't do it. Oh, come on, man. Come on. When's the last time we had a beer? <laughs> 10 years. Come on, man. Have a beer. You know, go ahead. Go. Okay. What do you drink? I'm having a black and tan. Why don't oh. you have a black and tan? So I drank a black and tan and got the worst fucking stomach ache i could tell you like an intestinal i it was just awful those are awful that, beers yeah well but there you know whatever i don't understand this shit so so that was it so that was 96 so so i haven't had a beer like since then except i was in dublin last year staying at a friend's place because yeah. my friends live around the world and they put <laughs> us up ever we travel but we were on a little tour we went to edinburgh and we stayed with some friends and now we're in dublin and uh, my host says, "Oh, you must have a, you must have a Guinness." Oh. I said, "Really?" He says, "You must, John. You're in Dublin. We're going to go to the pub where it all originated from, and you're going to have a Guinness. And there's no place else in the world to have a Guinness than here, because this is the best. Every place beyond here sucks. So this is where you get it. And <laughs> even pregnant women are allowed to drink it because it has so much iron." <laughs> So I drank a fucking Guinness and I did drink it. I made it through and it was, it wasn't, it was like a meal. The shit's really like filling. You know? Oh yeah, for sure. So I did drink a warm Guinness. All right. I drank an entire mug. I did not get sick. That was the sixth beer of my life. I consider it a victory and I'm walking away still standing. I'm totally fine. You finished strong. So anyway, there's my history. You know what's really funny about that, John? That the night before you and I met for breakfast, if you remember last October when I was down in New York City, yeah, we we were supposed to meet for lunch, and uh, you had something come up, so we canceled. And I was out with my buddy who took me to a place in the, in the East Village, and I had never had Guinness before. I didn't like it. All my friends love it. I hate it. But I'm in New York City, and with my buddy, he says Guinness is all around. So we're drinking, and I think you know what when in Rome, right 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 so i have a i have a guinness and i said eh, it's kind of warm and it's filling but it's not that bad so i, I ended up drinking a bunch of them and, and I, <laughs> I totally came around on guinnesses and then i you know saw you the next morning <laughs> so let me ask you do you have guinness in canada I'm oh sure yeah you, yeah yeah for sure all right so yeah so it's it's okay i i just I, alcohol has never been on my palate. It just never, you know, some people have it, some people don't. I'm not, you know, I don't gamble. I think that's kind of stupid. I just don't understand gambling. I mm -hmm. don't drink because I don't understand booze. It's, these aren't religious decisions. These aren't moral decisions. These are just like common sense decisions. Like, I don't like the taste of booze. I don't drink it. Yeah. I don't gamble. I don't understand why anybody would bother gambling. I think it's a stupid exercise. If you want to lose money, you gamble. I guess you got to like losing money. If you think you're going to make money, you're an idiot. That's it, right. Everybody knows 
if, if the reason why all their own business is because you don't make money at it, you know. So I don't have to sit there with my rent going, Daddy needs a, you know, my, or baby needs a new pair of shoes. <laughs> Vegas, you know, the promoters and the, the casino owners, you know, they want to teach you the games because they want you to leave the money you just earned yeah. at the table. And I just tell them, I'm not fucking interested. I don't even want to know how to push a button on the slot machine. Just don't bother me. I just have no, I don't get gambling. And I don't get drinking. And so someone says, well, God, you're a guitar player in a metal band. Isn't that two of the Ten Commandments of, <laughs> of metal? And I go, well, I didn't say I didn't get sex. I got that really well. Like, really, really well. So that's not a problem. Um, but no, I just, these other two things never, uh, way too practical. Never. And, and, and D didn't either. And Mendoza didn't either. Like, you know, I found guys who shared the same same thing. Although they love motorcycles and all the other stuff that goes with it, you know, they're they're car guys. Motorcycle guys. I'm not a car guy. I'm not mm. a motorcycle guy. I'm from Manhattan. What the fuck do I know? The number one train. You know, it gets me from A to B alive. You know, I don't care. I was on a motorcycle. The last time I was on a motorcycle, as a matter of fact, was 50 years ago this summer. Wow. I was on the back of a motorcycle. My friend had just bought a hot, meaning stolen. <laughs> Triumph Bonneville, and we were wasted, like fucked up, because we're always. Right. I should always just say it's the '60s, which means we're just always stoned. Unless I tell you we're not stoned, assume we were stoned. <laughs> so we're so wrecked, and we're on this motorcycle. And we're traveling down Broadway on the way to actually see the movie Hell's Angel '69. This is a true story. This okay. is a true story because I recently had dinner with the guy who's riding the bike who said that was me who was driving. I forgot who was on the bike and it was him. And there's a, the, you know, we're heading down the Upper West Side and. We get to some street and the light turns red and there's a VW and it's, it's stopped at the light. And so I'm thinking, cause I'm on the back of this bike, the guy who's driving the bike will hit the brake because, you know, otherwise we plow into this VW at the light, you know, when they're getting closer and closer, he's not hitting the brake. Lo and behold, he doesn't hit the brake. We smash into the back of this, of this VW and we go flying across the street. Now I wasn't wearing a helmet and luckily I didn't land on my head. I would have died. Being in New York, only in New York could this happen. We were on a stolen bike. Right, we were on a bike that was stolen that he just bought from a junkie. We hit a car being driven by two guys. They get out of the car and they go, "Man, are you okay?" We said, "I think so." And the guy goes, "Good, man. Like, can we leave?" <laughs> and I said, "Why?" He says, "We just stole this car. <laughs> so we don't want the cops to come. You know, only in New York can two can there be a car accident on the corner and everybody runs." <laughs> that was the '60s in New York. I mean, it's funny. It's not really funny. I had a Puerto Rican mailman who, Louis Delgado, who told me this story. He said that he was driving his little red Subaru across the Cross Bronx Expressway. Do you know what the Cross Bronx Expressway is in New York City? It's one of the worst roads in the United States. No, I don't. It's right through the center of the Bronx, and you don't want to be stuck on that or any of the little roads on little streets next to it, right? It's everything that you ever saw about every horrible movie in the 70s. <laughs> okay. Horrible. But this was like early 70s. And my doorman, Louis, and my mailman says to me, he says, he called me Juanito. He goes, Juanito, man, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't believe what happened yesterday. I said, what? He goes, well, I'm in my Subaru, you know, and it starts to make noise and I pull off. I won't do this accent because I pull off on the side street and, uh, it's like in the middle of the night, you know, and he, remember this guy's Puerto Rican. Okay. Yeah. This is the South Bronx. He's in his Subaru. So he pulls over on the side street and he opens the hood and starts looking in the hood to see what happened. Next thing you know, there's a guy jacking up the back of his car, stealing his tire. Huh. And he goes, what are you doing? The guy says, you take the battery. I'll take the tires. <laughs> this is my car, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, this is my car, man. I'm sorry. 
Well, I'm not taking the battery, man. I'm just checking the battery. So he said, the guy said, oh, cool. Okay. You know, I'll leave you alone. Oh, so he didn't take the tire then. Yeah, he didn't take the tire. He felt bad for my friend. Anyway, so that was like New York in the 60s. And, um, all right. So anyway, getting back to the material. So we have, um, we have a Superfly. Yes. Okay. Superfly is 72. And 72 was a turning point in my life because I was, you know, druggy and kind of dealing a lot of weed. I'm just way ahead of my time dealing weed. Let's put it this way. I was a visionary and an entrepreneur. I could see marijuana being the future of the economy of the United States. I could see it back when I was 15 years old. And only now am I being proven right because all around this country, they're legalizing weed. But back then, I was a pioneer, you know, kind of like the way all those bootleggers were, you know, that made their fortunes and then became straight businessmen. Yeah. So um, I was a weed dealer, and uh, come 72, I had become disillusioned with the whole hippie world and the drug world, and that's kind of what changed my mind. Superfly had an impact on me. I went to see the movie, and I kind of thought, this is not the life. Being a dealer was not the issue for me. You know, selling pot was not, it was always, can you buy guitars and amplifiers and be in a band? You know, not getting caught up in, in the dealing world, and I certainly wasn't big i I did my i did what i needed to do because i wanted to buy guitars and amps you know and playing and in bands and i needed money to do that and the easiest way to do it was to sell weed and um uh, i'm and i was very successful at it but i also knew that you can get arrested eventually (laughs) get a police record and and i was almost i was almost busted twice and i talked my way out of it both times which is amazing and i said you know time is time is coming and superfly kind of put the nail in the coffin it told a story about a guy, an urban guy, and Curtis Mayfield's soundtrack was astonishing to me. And the reason why I gave you those songs was because they were pivotal songs in my life that meant something to me. When you do this, when you interview people about the songs that make a difference, mm-hmm. why they made a difference is, is the basis of why I give you these songs. Because they mattered to me at the time. They mattered to my life at the time. They were pivotal songs at the time. Does it mean they're the greatest things I've owned? The most important things in the history of mankind, no. But you and I, Brent, could talk music for years. Oh, yeah. And we're going to come up with albums and songs and things that make a difference to our lives and impacted our lives and and uh, maybe affected us in one way or another, got us through a day. And, I, and here's, a, here's another way to look at it. I get emails from fans all the time, and they tell me, Twisted Sister changed my life. Twisted mm-hmm. Sister music got me through my tough times. And I get this all the time. Thank you so much. Twisted, you know, spoke to me. I was a loner. I had no friends or, you know, when I needed, I, I, I felt close to you. And I get tons of these emails. I mean, tons of them. Yeah. And at the beginning when I was getting them, I thought this was a joke, you know. And I said, so who, who did it? Who thanks a band for writing lyrics and, and like that gets them through their day? And I was kind of cynical in the beginning. And then... And the reason why, this is going to sound funny, but I don't know any of these lyrics because I don't listen to them because I'm in the band, right? We're playing songs. Yeah. We write these songs. We have the music and then these things over them. And so I'm not necessarily listening to his writing, although he's a really good writer. He writes, I mean, I've subsequently to all this, I've read his writings and he's a great lyricist. Oh, yeah. Really, really good. But I didn't know his writings. I didn't really know what his message necessarily was. I know it may sound weird. But when you're in the middle of it, you may not be paying attention. And I didn't really pay attention that much. I mean, I remember specifically telling me that Under the Blade was written about Eddie's throat operation. Yeah. At the time, it was true. Eddie had had a, a tonsillectomy or something and D wrote Under the Blade. 
And he said, it's funny, people are going to interpret it as something else, but it's about Eddie's throat operation. And obviously, Can't Stop Rock and Roll is an anthem. Most part, I don't really pay that much attention. And because of these emails, I started paying attention, and I see what it means to people. Well, you know what? When I tell you that these songs that I've just listed made a difference in my life, there's really no difference between that and these emails that I get. These songs got me through days. This music, I looked forward to getting home and playing that Rolling Stones record. I got looking forward to playing, you know, buying Who's Next. I remember buying it. I remember playing it. I remember buying Sticky Fingers. I remember playing it. I remember uh, buying Every Picture Tells a Story. I remember buying Superfly. I remember buying Move On Up. I remember these records like it was yesterday. I remember how they made me feel. And, you know, this is why you have the show that you have. And this is why you and I bond. Because... We looked at these songs as songs that made a difference. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's the whole purpose of this. And I, I've always seen it that way. You know, when I was a kid, the first book I wrote, you know, was about that feeling that when you listen to music, it, it you know, how, how does music feel to you? Not, I don't care how it sounds or even looks. How does it feel? And I wanted to, you know, investigate that aspect of it and talk to people about how music made them feel. And, you know, the podcast about that, you know, I, I, I give talks on that stuff. But, you know, it, it, music is just so powerful in, in, in the sense that it's connective. And like you said, I mean, we could talk for years about, and I get such a joy out of doing that. And, and you read All My Favorite People Are Broken. I mean, I, I knew that you'd love that book just because you, you see things the exact same way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as the band evolved, you know, we got Mendoza in the band and then his love for for Cream and his love for heavy music became part of the band's backbone and Dee's love for Alice Cooper and Slade. I mean, they loved those bands and we all loved ACDC and we loved Judas Priest and we imbued their vibe into our music. And this because we had a passion for this. We understood it. We felt it. You know, Mark is one of the most passionate guys I've ever met. I mean, Eddie's uh, Eddie's playing is spectacular. Eddie brought in an incredible, um, soulful aspect. Me and Eddie had our foundation, but our foundation wasn't metal. It was sixties, you know, rock. And then Dee brings in, Dee was a little younger. So he brought in his Alice Cooper Slade vibe, mm -hmm. you know, and then Mark was a little younger and brought in, you know, his Sabbath vibe and, and then some crazy esoteric metal bands that you never heard of, like Dust and Black Oak Arkansas, when well, you may have heard of BOA, but yeah. Blue Cheer, you know, these were super heavy bands and our love for heavy and our love for emotional heavy music became big. And then learning, I was explaining this to a guitar magazine recently called uh, The Tone Quest Report. They just did a huge nine page interview with me. And I was explaining the evolution of the band and how we learned how to control massive amounts of distortion to make a unified sound. Mm -hmm. That's like what bands do that play metal. It's like harnessing a nuclear weapon. And uh, it's an art form unto itself. And that's what we evolved into. But it all stems from the original love of the music, which all stems from me from the very first hit record I heard on the radio, which was called Hey Paula. Yeah. Back in 1963, which is an innocuous pop tune. You know, so how do I go from Hey Paula, you know, to Motorhead? I mean, that's an interesting jump. <laughs> you know? The music that you gravitated to at certain points of your life tells you a lot about how you were living your life and, and why you needed that music that you did. The music is there for the purposes that they're there. Yes. So pop music pre-Beatles served its purpose for that moment. Then the Beatles ushered in a new world. I mean, a whole new world. I just did, I just wrote an essay for Goldmine uh, magazine called a, a Dave Clark Five and Appreciation. Mm -hmm. I love the Dave Clark Five and the Dave Clark Five had tons of hits. And the difference in the Dave Clark Five and the Beatles were the Dave Clark Five never converted to an album band. 
they snared a singles band. And in 66, when everybody was doing drugs and converting, they didn't make the conversion. Hmm. So we kind of lost them. But meanwhile, I'm sitting here thinking, glad all over, bits and pieces, catch us if you can, because uh, can't you see that she's mine over and over. I'm thinking all these songs were number one, and none of them were number one, which yeah. is weird. I, hmm. My memory tells me they were. It turns out their first number one was over and over, which was number one two years after the Beatles came out, which surprised me. You know, So if you say to somebody, Brent, well, let me ask you this question, Brent, because you're a musicologist, mm -hmm. okay? And maybe it's different in Canada. Okay. But if I say to you, okay, Beatles are, the, are, ground, are, are ground zero for British invasion bands, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So they had three number ones in a row. I want to hold your hand. She loves you and can't, and, um, um, can't buy me love. Yeah. Dominated the charts for like 16 weeks. And we're knocked off by Louis Armstrong's Hello Dolly. Mm -hmm. Question. What is the name of the next British invasion band to have a number one song? Who mm. would it be? It's not the Rolling Stones, is it? No, because, and to be fair, and so you know about the Rolling Stones, their first number one satisfaction came out two years later. Okay, so we're talking 63. Right. Remember, well, they had, they had a single, Time is on My Side, but it never got, got anywhere. It got to number 37. So who's the first British invasion band? to have a number one song after the Beatles. And by the way, it was about a month after. So Louis Armstrong came out with Hello, Dolly. Yeah. And I think I think the song Hello, Stranger became the next. There was another. It was a pop ballad by a female singer. And then the next British invasion group had a, had a number one. Care hmm. to guess? Was it the Trogs? No. No. Hmm, I don't know. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Peter and Gordon. Oh, World Without Love was the next number one single, written, by the way, by Paul McCartney. Yeah, I would have never known that. Right. And then the next one after that, which was about three weeks later, was Do Ah Diddy Diddy by Manfred Mann. No way. And the next one after that, which was in August of 64, believe it or not, yeah. was the Animals' House of the Rising Sun. Ah, uh, okay. Which you probably could see that in your ears. You know, yeah. you could probably hear it, right? Because yeah. it was such a huge hit. Those are the first four number ones by British Invasion. Although there was actually one kind of cute trivia question, which is, name me a British musical band, guitar-based band, the first British guitar-based pop band to have a number one single in America, and what year was it? So everybody who says Beatles, I want to hold your hand. Mm -hmm. The answer to that question is the group, oh God, why are you listening? The song is uh, Telstar. It was instrumental. And it was by the Tornadoes, <laughs> and it was and it was number one in America in 1962, and it was the first British guitar-based band to have a number one single. So who's the musicologist here? I think it's yeah. I think it's you. Well, <laughs> it's kind of weird to think that the Tornadoes had this number one song, and they are a British beat group. They were a British beat group produced by Joe Meek at the time, and um, they had the first single. Why it became number one in 62 was simple. Because remember, Sputnik went up in 62. Yeah. So Telstar came out at a perfect time because it sounded very spacey. Yeah. It sounded like, like a theme song for the Jetsons TV show, if you, if you listen to it. So that they kind of had perfect timing on their side. But, oh, and, and being a musicologist that you are, here's a, a really great trivia thing. So the Beatles in 67, mm -hmm. you think about all the great albums that came out in 67, yeah. right? All the great artists that came out in 67. So the Beatles had two albums released in 67. Yes. Beatles released no singles from Sgt. Pepper mm -hmm. at all. Their number one singles for 67 were Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane, which were released in February, as the original singles that were supposed to be on Sgt. Pepper that were not on Sgt. Pepper. Okay. And on the last week of the year, Hello, Goodbye from Magical Mystery Tour is number one. Right. There's no songs from Sgt. Pepper released as a single, strangely enough. 
However, Sgt. Pepper occupied the number one position for 15 weeks and closed the year with the number one album, Magical Mystery Tour. So for like 17 weeks, the Beatles held the number one spot with two albums. But there's one American rock group mm-hmm. that had four number one albums in 1967, and they occupied the number one position for 38 weeks cumulatively over their four-album span. And they outsold the Beatles three to one in the UK and England. In 67? Yeah. Um, hmm. The Birds? Four number one albums. Yeah. Oh, four yeah. number one records held the number one spot for 38 weeks in the U.S. and outsold the Beatles by a ton in both the U.S. and the U.K. Oh, Beach Boys. Nope. Really? Mamas and Papas? Nope. The Birds? Nope. I don't know. You ready, ready for this? Yeah. The Monkees. Oh, fuck. Really? Yeah. Four, they have four number one albums. How is that possible? Man, go to Billboard and look. You blow your mind. Jesus. Blow your And they were number one in England, too. You know, I like Daydream Believer, but that's a, that's perverse to me because they're a they're a manufactured band, right? Yeah, that's perverse. Ugh. It is. I'm not doubting. It's not, it is perverse. That's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I didn't know the answer until I read it, and then I went, "Oh my god!" And then I went to the Billboard charts. And I looked at. I counted all the weeks. Four different titles were number one. What are the what? Are, I, but you know, you know, Daydream Believer and maybe a couple others. But like, what are the songs on these records? I don't even know them. I think Last Train to Clarksville. Okay, was yeah, first, was their first big hit. Pleasant Valley Sunday was a massive, massive hit. Okay, a Daydream Believer was a massive, massive hit. Oh yeah. I mean, they had they had hits. I'm, I'm, I'm by the way, I'm not. I don't have Monkeys albums, you know. So I'm, I'm not the world's greatest. I don't know, aficionado of them. I just think that's astonishing to think. It is. That they were that big and that they held number one on the four different records. Okay? That's just a crazy statistic. That's I, all. I had no idea. Wow. The Stones had two albums out in 67, which people don't realize. Um, they had Between the Buttons came out in January of 67. Mm-hmm. And Satanic Magic's came out in December of 67. And the Israeli Gears and Satanic Magic's came out the same week. Mm-hmm. I bought both of them at a record store in the village called the, Psych- the Psychedelic Atessin. That is so cool. And uh, and we know, all know how great this really gears. What was in that magical time when you knew these records were going to come out and you went to the record store, saw them, grabbed them, ha- held them in your hand? You went to the store every week. Because, you know, back in those days, we didn't know that the record day was a Tuesday. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't know all the business that there was. We just knew that new music was coming out all the time. Yeah. FM radio is just starting. So those FM DJs were just starting to get the hang of what releases were coming out. So on any given week, you just walk to the store and pick records up. I mean, yeah, 67 was a crazy great year. And you know, people say to me, well, you're listening to bands these days. This is what I get all the time. Who are you listening to? And I go, well, I listen to blues because it's timeless. It's like my classical music. You know, yeah. I can listen to blues all day long. I only listen to stuff that people are absolutely, absolutely are enamored with. So my friend Cliff sent me, maybe you know of them. They are um, Tame Impala. Yes. Yeah. They're huge, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah, Tame Impala is absolutely huge. So I have to listen to them because my friend said, you've got to listen to them. <laughs> you know, so I understand. What do you, what do you think of them? I haven't really spent time. I just need to. Mm. He's obsessed with them. And he also promotes rock festivals and he's had Tame Impala. And I understand Tame Impala sold that Madison Square Garden for two days. Now, back when I was 17, you couldn't do that without me knowing it. Yeah. But now I'm 67 and I don't care. So therefore, 
I have to really be told. Also, to be that popular 50 years ago, everybody knew who you were. That's right. These days, everything's under the radar. You know, these people, Tame Impala could be the greatest band in the world, but they're not Beyonce and they're not Britney and they're not Celine and they're not, you know, whomever. And yeah. so therefore, you know, they're not part of the, the Kardashians aren't wearing their t-shirt. So, um, if you're just a casual observer and you're not paying attention, you don't listen to rock radio much, you know, or you wouldn't know, but I'm happy to know that these bands exist like that. And it's fabulous. Yeah. And it's great. John, there's so much out there now. That's the problem, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, the good news is anyone can make a record. The bad news is anybody can make a record. Which means that every piece of crap that you think of, you can make a record, you can make and put it online, which means there's a lot of crap out there. And, you know, like I say about people who write books, everybody has a story, but most people just shouldn't write it. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, and and everyone has a song in their hearts, and most people shouldn't sing them, and most people shouldn't write them. (laughs) Leave it to the pros, really. Save the rest of us the fucking embarrassment of having to listen to, you know, your version of fucking Yoko and Neil Young doing a duet. I don't think I really need to hear it, you know. Now, now because we live in a free country, you know, we're allowed to um, to turn shit off, right? Yeah. And I also want to be the last guy in the world to tell you that you don't have a right to, you know, to do something. Of course you do. I mean, because, you know, I like some stuff that people could hate, so I don't care. I don't mean to sound like my dad. You know, my dad was like, Everything after 1945 sucked. I mean, life was easy for my father. Yeah. He wrote off like billions of, billions of songs. I don't want to sound like my dad. So if you make a point of playing something for me, I like it. Cool. If I don't, uh, pay attention. But there's so much out there. It's impossible. When did you get turned on to Tame and Power? Like three, four years ago. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I haven't heard from them, like I said, in, you know, one or two years now. They had some pretty, I can't remember the name of their huge single. It was really big. It had like a, it's funny that you say Tim Impala because they had kind of a 60s, like late 60s flavor in the chorus of their song, which I initially took issue with because I thought they're just trying to replicate a certain sound and it's not organic. It's not real, but they're, they're fine. Have a listen and I'd be interested to, to see what you think. I will. Shoot me a text and let me know what you think of it. So you've got one more song here. It's uh, The Temptations, and Papa was a Rolling Stone. So there's 1972 again. And um, Motown was kind of on its downside. You know, if you think about the ridiculous history of Motown. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you take all the Beatles and British Invasion music and all Motown off the charts from 63 to 72, you don't have much left. (laughs) You know, you've got the Beach Boys, maybe, but... You know, you don't have much left. And Motown was insane. And I think 72, I think the last great Motown single was Pop Rose and Rolling Stone. And I remembered falling in love with that bass because I just said, that's not a machine. You know, that's boom, 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 boom. So, so James Jamerson played that shit for like an hour, yeah. two hours, whatever, perfectly with the drums. And the song was great. You know, I, I have to say, the thing about Motown, which was incredible is there's a song called ball of confusion yep. by the temptations and there's a line in it which just goes to show you that there was an attempt to unify all forms of music i believe the line was something is moving fast and the beatles new records a gas okay <laughs> and the beatles new records a gas now this is past the time the beatles were together but the writers of holland dozier holland you know acknowledge the beatles greatness yeah. and of course the beatles you know, covered Motown stuff, you know, back in the early days. Money, yeah. 
which is written by Barry Gordy. You really got a hold on me. Smokey Robinson's, you know, like they did, they did songs by Smokey and Chuck and 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 uh, you know, besides the rock and roll stuff of Chess, you know, Chuck Berry. They did they did Barry Gordy stuff. So there was a huge Please, Mister Postman by the Marvelettes. It's all Motown. Yeah. So it was a nice com- It was a nice thing to hear. And anyway, I just love Papa's Rolling Stone. You know, all of this music climaxed into David Bowie, and then five years in Ziggy and Hunky Dory, which then changed my life and sent me on a trajectory. Yeah. In you know into into my rock world. So what we're talking about is the music that ended my rock era and leading into my self discovery of who J.J. French was and Twisted Sisters explosion you know or, or creation rather in, in, in late 72 so i think papa's rolling stone was october november 72 somewhere around there yeah and that's when i changed into and morphed into jj uh, or 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 morphed into the guy that became jj french because that's when i started to that's when i saw kiss play in the loft and saw their very first time they ever really performed as kiss in a rehearsal space for me and, and their producer ron johnson and um, I saw the dolls at uh, the Mercer Art Center, and and uh, and Bowie was sitting there, and saw Bowie at Carnegie Hall. You know, I saw before the Radio City concert, he played Carnegie Hall in September, and they didn't have any, um, they didn't have any props. They just came out in their costume. That must have been a powerful time for you. It was. Well, I said the Beatles were my Saturn Five. Yeah. Uh, and they got me off the planet. Bowie was my retro rocket. You know, who took off. You know, once we broke the atmosphere, he's the one that pushed me into into space and 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 to decide to to make a, a go of it as a rock musician and as i have ri- as i did this interview for um, tone quest magazine at the end of the interview i said you know i look back at my life 47 years ago twisted started wow. okay and i look back at it now and i think okay so 47 years later you know i've amassed like something like 37 gold and platinum records mm-hmm. as a member of the band or as a producer for another band like seven dust right or playing on other people's records like lordy um you know and so i've got those and i've played over 9000 shows and we headlined the biggest festivals in the world for the last 14 years we released a christmas record that became a hit yeah we had massive record sales we sold 20 million records they hungry did 6 million do i have any regrets or do how do i look back at it i said i don't owe anybody any explanation you know i I've, I've won some i've lost some we had some hard times we had great times we had really hard times went through multiple divorces health issues but i won more than i lost yeah and so and so rock was good to me at the end of the day it was it exceeded my expectations i used to brag i'd be a rock star to people i had no idea what the hell i was saying i didn't know what that meant I used to tell my girlfriend's parents, you know, what are you going to do? You're a high school dropout. Don't worry, I'm going to be a rock star. Because I just want to shut them the fuck up, you know. And I just had no idea how else to do it. And I, I had no idea what I was saying. But the, the road to it was uh, crazy. And, and it's built on the back of the passion that we have for the music. Because if we didn't have the passion for the music, we wouldn't have the dream. That's right. And that passion started at the age of 10. And I'm one of the few people in the world that, that had a dream at the age of 10 and fulfilled it. Most people don't. I mean, if you think about it, even very successful people, many of them didn't find the direction until they're out of college or a couple of years later. You know, I, yeah. I, I, do, I, you know, I do, I do uh, motivational speaking. Yeah. Um, I have a whole career in motivational speaking. If you want to hire me, if you think you've heard every, <laughs> if you think you've heard every story, you haven't, but I'm writing my book called the twisted method of entrepreneurial reinvention. And it's T-W-I-S-T-E-D, which stands for tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, and discipline. T-W-I-S-T-E-D. Wow. 
ED. The twisted method of entrepreneurial reinvention. I talk about reinvention because our entire life was reinvention. My entire life was reinvention. How many times I reinvent myself, constantly changing. You know, there's a cliche in the music business, Brent. It says you got 20 years to write your first record and six months to write your second. It's true. Most people who have a burst of creativity in their life, that creativity is the culmination of a whole bunch of life experiences. And then someone says, what's next? Yeah. Fuck what's next. I just finished giving you my magnum opus. Well, it's not good enough now. You got to do it again. Yeah. So we're always reinventing. I mean, we reinvent ourselves in school. We reinvent ourselves when we go from public school to college. We reinvent ourselves from college into the business world. We reinvent ourselves in the first job and your second job. You reinvent yourself when you get married. You reinvent yourself when you have a kid. You reinvent yourself all the time. We reinvent ourselves. And so I teach entrepreneurial reinvention. And I, and I, if you're interested in hiring me, if I'm a shill, you can contact me at frenchmgmt at gmail.com. French mgmt at gmail.com and i have this book coming out and i i teach tools for it and all these the point of it friend is when i started the whole thing yeah this was not what i was doing it for i was doing because i love playing rock and roll i mm -hmm. didn't know where it was going to take me i didn't understand what music licensing was which is the core of how we make money these days we license our music for tv shows tv commercials movies soundtracks we're the most licensed metal band in the world we're mm -hmm. not going to take it i want to rock are the two most licensed songs Life has taken its interesting turns, and it all started because I loved rock music, like you did. Yeah, that's it. That is the, the root of it, the love and the passion for music. Uh, let me ask you this, Brent, because you ask people all the time. Sure. So your top five records, the records that impact you the most, what would they be? Oh, man. Um, there are so many. Okay, let's say there was no limit. Let's say I open-ended, but give me the records that in your head that you just, you, you said, you hung your hat on and said, I love this, I love this shit. Okay, what would so the, the ones that come to mind right away are Exile, right. uh, Hunky Dory, Ziggy. I don't know if you, there's a guy named Ryan Adams. I don't know if, if you know who that sure. is. Gold, sure. that's a fantastic fucking record. Right. I like a lot of metal stuff, obviously, as you know. A lot of Judas Priest, right. Iron Maiden stuff. Zeppelin, physical graffiti, definitely. How many is that? That's like four well, or five. No, you got more than that. I mean, because you threw in, you threw in like a bunch of like, I love Maiden, I love Priest. I mean, they could be one, two, three albums, right? you know. Revolver. Yeah. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that that's like four or five right there. Well, those are all the same records pretty much that make my world. Because they had substance, I think. You know, I, I feel like those are the records. When you look at, you, you stand up and look at the history and the genealogy of rock. You look at what was most important. And, and this is just my opinion, and uh, you, you might agree. But like those were the most meaningful records when you look at the entire canon. I don't think anybody would argue that point. I, some historians may nitpick and some may tell you that Elvis's Heartbreak Hotel was mm. that important. And someone will turn around and say Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley changed the world. And to, to a degree, you know, that that did happen. And yes, Elvis was important. And John Lennon said without Elvis, there's no Beatles. So that's always an important thing to, mm -hmm. to, to factor in on this stuff. But at the end of the day, I was 11 when the Beatles came. Yep. And um, they had a profound effect on me and millions of other people. I mean, I, I that's why running into Paul McCartney or Ringo Starr, I would be at a loss to say anything. I, I'm Because they've heard it all before. Yep. And I, I think the only question I would ask them is probably a question they've never been asked before. And that was, 
I'm not interested in the hits. I'm not interested in the albums. I'm interested in, in one era. The three years you were killing yourself in the bars, you yeah. know, whether it was in Hamburg or the Cavern Club or the or the Casbah um, Coffee Club in the basement of Pete Best's mom's house. In those three years where you were wood shopping and figuring it all out, what was the first original you played out live? Mm-hmm. And what was the response to it? And were you terrified at the thought? That's what I really want to know. And I don't know if anyone's ever asked them that question. So that's a good question. Be- because that question posed to me. The first original we ever played live was Comeback. And I think we were terrified <laughs> at the idea that the people wouldn't like it or the club owner would use this as an excuse to fire us. Mm. So I would like to know what thinking, like they had to have sat down and said, all right, boys, this is it. Tonight, between the Little Richard and the Chuck Berry song, we're going to play whatever, one after 909, whatever the first thing they did and decided to play. I'd love to know what conversation took place. Yeah. What was the dressing room atmosphere like? Were they nervous? Were they self-assured? Did they think it was not going to be a problem? Did anybody make a, a comment? Were they scared? Did they doubt themselves? No one's ever asked them that. I've never read the answers to those questions. Yeah. Well, it, it's possible they may have not been asked. It's a good question. I would love to know because that's at the heart of all great bands. You know, what was the transition point where you went from being a cover band? You have to remember the Beatles were one of the very few groups that had identities that went from, they started out as a cover band, mm. right? Morphed into a pop band. Yeah. They morphed into a rock band, and then they broke up. Yeah. They, they had distinct lives. Cover band, pop band, rock band. Yeah. They also got rid of us before we got rid of them. Yeah. One of the very few bands that fires you before you fire them. That's true. The other thing is, uh, completely kind of disconnected from all this, but I'm going to, because you're a musicologist, Certainly, you know Les Pauls and Stratocasters and Telecasters, right? I've, I've got a couple, yep. Yeah. Right. And you know how important they are to the history of rock and roll, Absolutely. Right? No question. And you know the greatest records in the world were, were either Les Paul, Strats, or Tellys. Yep. Why is it that the greatest rock and roll band in the world's greatest songs were not used, were not played by any of those guitarists? Mm. The Beatles' first two years was Rickenbacker, Gretsch, and Hoffner. That's true. Not a single Gibson, not a single Fender came into play in fact the first time a fender guitar ever showed up on a beatles record and the minute i tell you the song you're going to hum it in your head Mm -hmm. okay nowhere man but that was the first time a fender ever made it onto a beatle record no way wow yeah and so that was in 66 so if you think about that the greatest music ever recorded was recorded without the help of a gibson or a fender and you know um in the beatles gearbook which was written by andy babuke who's a friend of mine Mm -hmm. He, ta- he has a quote from George Harrison in the book, which will never wind up on a Vox amplifier ad mm-hmm. <laughs> or a Rickenbacker guitar ad yeah. or a Gretsch ad. The quote is, until we got Fenders, we didn't really as- realize what kind of a shit guitar sound we had. <laughs> 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 as, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking of the birds and the 12-string Rickenbacker they used to play, that jangly sound, right? Well, that is a great guitar, but John Lennon played a 325, arguably the worst guitar ever built by a non-communist country. <laughs> That's a very interesting fact. 325, did you ever hold one in your hand? I, I don't even know what a 325 is. It's John Lennon played it. It's a little black Rickenbacker that he played. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. John Lennon should win a fucking award <laughs> for being able to make hit records with that piece of shit. <laughs> it, it's so bad. Oh, I can't say. I, I don't know if I'm going to say this. 
a very, very well-known president of a guitar company okay. told me yeah. when I asked him his opinion of what was the most famous Rickenbacker guitar, like yeah. the most seminal, because I was thinking the 12-string played by Roger McGuinn yeah. and George Harrison, right? It is famous. It does. It's on great records. Yeah. But he said, unfortunately, the 325. And I said, why? He says, is this the worst guitar ever built? Oh. And the neck is like a three-quarter neck. It's made for like little people. I don't understand the guitar. <laughs> the fact that Lennon can play... I mean, Lennon was a great rhythm guitar player. never gets credit for how great he was. Mm-hmm. And he made him... He played them on that worst fucking guitar ever known to man. So when guitar manufacturers try to sell you on this guitar will make you great, what makes you great is practicing. Yes. What makes you great is the desire to be good. Because Jimi Hendrix will sound like fucking Jimi Hendrix on any guitar known to man. You're right. Leslie West will sound like Leslie West on any guitar known to man. And Chuck Berry will sound like Chuck Berry on any fucking guitar. Because it's the way they play it. It's not the gear. And I get the gear is important. I really do. I'm a gearhead. I love it. But in reality, if it ain't your fingers, it ain't there. Learn to be you no matter what you're playing. And you'll be much better off than thinking a pedal is going to make you better. I agree. Angus Young didn't have an Angus Young 3000 pedal. Yeah, thank you. Right. Straight Jack knew a Marshall. Exactly. Between hay bales. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, man. Thank you very much for your time today. It's always a, a huge treat talking to you, buddy. I appreciate it, man. Well, thank you. Um, I, I, you know what? We'll do this again another year or so. And uh, trust me, we can do this for years, Brent, because oh. there's hundreds of us we could talk about. Oh, I know. You said earlier we could talk for years. We literally could. There's so much to go through. So we'll do it again in a year or so. Yeah, maybe maybe what we do, we'll, dis- we'll discuss 1967 as a, as a watershed year. I think that would be kind of cool. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Okay, you take care of yourself, man. Okay, you too, brother. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. John J.J. French. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. 